Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Mark Fencer, chair of the board and founder of RSF Social Finance and a longtime student of Rudolf Steiner and his work. Mark Fencer, welcome to the New School. Thank you. Great to be, great to be part of it. Mark, you are the chair and a founding uh, member of an organization called RSF Social Finance. And let's just start there. What is RSF Social Finance? RSF Social Finance has um, been uh, working since 1984 to really try and bring more awareness and consciousness to the way money works in the world. And uh, you started, I think, with about six thousand dollars. Uh, uh, while you were the executive uh, CEO, it uh, went up to a hundred million dollars in resources. I think it's now at about a hundred and twenty million. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. It's kind of unique because uh, technically we're a foundation, so we have the you know tax exempt status of a five hundred one c three. And yet, uh, in many ways, we've we've really act like a financial intermediary. And so the first money that came in when we started, the $6,000 was actually earmarked for cancer research over in Europe related to Rudolf Steiner's work. But the, uh, the first money that came in was actually money that was being lent to us as opposed to being donated to us. And we, in turn, then lent it out to worthwhile projects. Uh, we felt that the, there was a whole spectrum of financial transactions all the way from the pure gift uh, all the way to the more traditional investment, and that we wanted to be really working out of that whole spectrum. And there were times when an organization maybe needed a grant, and that was the best and right thing for them. But there are other times where uh, a loan maybe was, was the most appropriate thing to, to help stimulate their more grounded uh, community activity and, and would enable them to pay back over time and, and require them to be a little bit more businesslike and professional. So give us an example of a uh, current uh, investment uh, that Rudolf Steiner, I'm sorry, RSF Social Finance, it began as the Rudolf Steiner Foundation. Is That's that right, yeah. Yeah, so it's easy for me to make that mistake. Yeah, well, Since we kept, uh, the, the name foundation was the biggest challenge, as I said, because uh, people would think they could apply to us for grants. But we really, since we only had $6,000, uh, which was going out soon, we really didn't have much money to grant out. The only money that we've been able to really grant out over these last 24, 25 years has been money that's been uh, put into donor-advised funds. That's a vehicle that philanthropists and donors use to, to have money work uh, uh, in a philanthropic way, and, and we administer the back office for them. But on the example of, of a loan, uh, a current loan would be, um, for example, a, a very large one that we have is with Esalen uh, Institute. And Esalen came to us right after the uh, El Nino and the, the mudslides and losing quite a bit of their property, including their baths. And so they had a major renovation project. And uh, this is an organization that had never taken on any debt. They were pretty much constantly living from hand to mouth with their cash money that came in from programs they then used for, uh, you know, for their expenses. And suddenly they, they had this, this big need. And so... Uh, RSF. They actually did a, a pre-financing uh, with a bank that was a very onerous situation, and we actually helped them get out of that and then took over that loan. And, uh, you know, they've been stellar as far as repaying. <clears throat> They're very proud of their 
of being able to repay. And even now with the fires that have just happened uh, here in California where they had interrupted service, uh, because of our due diligence and making sure they have always their in- their insurance and everything up to up to speed, uh, I think they'll be okay because they had insurance that will cover the interruption of service. And looking at your website, there is a wide range of loans uh, on issues like ending child labor, uh, indigenous permaculture, uh, better energy systems, yeah. uh, just a, a home homeward bound of Marin eco timber. So I guess you you uh, make loans across a very wide range of different kinds of organizations. Yes, it's. Um they can be for-profit or non-profit. Uh, they clearly have to be aligned with our mission. Uh, most of them we really are looking for ecological stewardship. Uh, another key area for us is food and agriculture. And uh, environmental sustainability is, is also interesting for us because it's, we feel that so much is needed there and that uh, so much of today's transactions are actually working in a destructive way. Right. Now suppose uh, an individual learns more about uh, RSF Social Finance and wants to invest in the RSF Social Investment Fund. Uh, how do they do that? Well, it's, uh, it's a relatively simple process. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the applications are online. Uh, we usually like to have a conversation with everybody that does it because it's really in the human, tra- human relationship that we feel something can, can change in the transaction. And so uh, we also feel philosophically that uh, we want everybody to feel they can participate in something like this. Normally, uh, this kind of activity is, is reserved for very high net worth individuals, but we, we have the bar very low. It's $1,000 to open the, the, an account, and, uh, and actually the duration, it can be as little as three, six months, three months, six months, 12 months uh, at RSF for people to try it out. In fact, when we started in 1984, our first investor, um, they put their money in and they asked for it back uh, six months later because they just didn't believe that uh, you know a non-governmental uh, regulated institution would really be able to to manage the money in a responsible way. And you know, as as you mentioned, we our assets not only grew but we uh, we've made over 150 million in loans now um, in these many years. And and happy to say that virtually. You know, no defaults. I mean, we've had a few defaults, uh, where, but it's you know, it's a zero zero <laughs> right. nine point nine or something. But it's, I think, four thousand dollars is the number that we often use. But there've been a few others that have come since. But but by and large, you know that, you know, you you can see that this kind of a lending really is relationship based. And so what we want is for the individual who's opening an account to feel a connection to where their money's working. We feel that actually has a transformative uh, experience for them as well as for the project, so that the project knows that the money is coming to them, really filled with intention. And we've had our projects say over the years that they can qualitatively feel the difference. Right. What inspired you to start RSF Social Finance? Uh Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, You know, I was very young and uh, was actually visiting a girlfriend out in in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and discovered that, and I was working at a, actually at a facility, I was an administrator at a facility for emotionally disturbed teenagers, and it was a for-profit facility in uh, Massachusetts, and 
uh, I needed discovered I needed to have a hernia operation and went to the hospital there and discovered I didn't have insurance that the which I had been paying into and I called in the insurance company and it turns out that the insurance had been canceled quite a bit before that and and the owner of my my basically my employer had embezzled our insurance money that affected me so profoundly that I realized that that I wanted to be active in something that had to had to do with working in a new way with money and with a higher integrity and I came back home and needed to have the operation at home uh, so I was living at my parents and just at that time I was talking to my father about you know how could one work differently with money and you know you know where were, where was the whole question around ethics and finance leading and this is back in uh, 83 84 and and he said, funny that you should say that. You know, I've been talking with somebody about RSF social finance at that time, Rudolf Steiner Foundation. And, and uh, you know, what you're really talking about is something very similar to what we've been thinking about getting started. So they all had other jobs, and I was recovering from a hernia operation and got going. And uh, lo and behold, we started. And, and, um, and the first project, actually, we always say that we've been project-driven, in many ways, the money comes into RSF, almost pulled by the inspiration of the of the investors, of the lenders who are putting money at RSF, to put their money for good. And so, our first project was a fire. There was a school in New Hampshire, where their property their, they had property, but their building burnt down and with a fire. And so, we got this emergency call. And so we wrote handwritten letters back then to numerous friends and and people that we felt that would be interested in this and gathered money together to make our first loan. Was this a Rudolf Steiner school? Yes, it was the Pine Hill Walder School up in uh, Wilton, New Hampshire. So many of our listeners may not be familiar with the work and life of Rudolf Steiner. Um, Who was Rudolf Steiner? Well... How do you say that in just a few sentences? Um, well, Rudolf Steiner died in 1925, um, but pretty much in his his lifetime, he was he's now I think credited with uh, really helping to inspire new ways of looking at education, at health and healing, at um, or what's now being called organic uh, agriculture, and uh, with questions around. Um, Know, with around uh, uh, architecture, the arts, so his his reach was very very broad. He uh, the way he worked was individuals would come to him with questions. He he was uh, a deeply spiritual person. He he very uh, deeply believed that there is a, a world beyond our current sense perceptible world, and so individuals would come to him and say, "Well, how can we renew something in education? How can we?" renew our field, whether it's in the medical world or an educational world or even in the finance world, because he then gave a whole series of economics lectures as well. He was born in Austria, yes. and there's a marvelous biography of him, I believe you know, by Gary Lackman called Rudolf Steiner. That's right. An introduction to his life and work. Yeah. And Lackman lists Waldorf schools, biodynamic farming, Camp Hill villages, which are wonderful places for mentally challenged people and other innovations uh, by the Aust- Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner, architect, artist, teacher, agriculturalist, one of the most creative and prolific figures of the early 20th century, 
laying the groundwork for today's revolutions in alternative education, holistic health, and organic foods. Very much what you just said, uh, but a very extraordinary figure. I, I had the opportunity to uh, visit uh, his center in uh, Switzerland. And uh, so Steiner has been a major inspiration for you throughout your life, has he not? Yes, yeah, he really has. I, I'm a Waldorf student, Waldorf graduate myself, and actually grew up in a community inspired by the work of Rudolf Steiner. There were, back in the 1920s, there were a couple of individuals in New York that created the first uh, organic and vegetarian restaurant, and they created a uh, little hotel there, and then they bought some land outside of New York, and it's about 180 acres, I believe, and and on there was a was a, one of the first biodynamic farms, and and there's a school and a retirement community, and so I was really blessed. I, I lived there, and uh, while my father commuted to Manhattan because he worked in the business world, I was able to walk to school and and feel really the the full intentionality of of living in such a place uh, was very very special, and I feel very grateful for that uh, that not only that childhood but but in many ways for what I've been able to do as a result of, uh, of being inspired by Rudolf Steiner's work. Steiner was also a great um, uh, a follower of, of Goethe, the great uh, German uh, creative genius. Um, and he's been compared uh, uh, to uh, Carl Jung as well in a remarkable book by Gerhard Ware. I don't know if you know it. Jung and Steiner, The Birth of a New Psychology. Also, there were close links uh, or parallels between Steiner and Edgar Cayce in the United States. Yes. Edgar Cayce was a, also a great mystic and seer, and there, so there, yeah. there are kind of parallels between Jung and Steiner and uh, Cayce and Steiner, remarkable uh, contemporaries. Yeah, I would agree. I, I actually... Uh, I did a, a thesis myself, a paper in, in college on Jung, and, and really really felt a lot of parallels there. And uh, I'm not familiar with uh, the answer to this question, but did, did uh, Steiner ever write about money himself? No, he didn't write about money specifically except speak about it in these economic lectures. There he talks about three archetypal transactions, so that's the closest he got to it. Uh, what was were in those, those lectures, three But he never wrote about uh, about money specifically. And you know, it's um, I guess as all movements are, it's one of the interesting pieces that a lot of these organizations that we started working with in the early years in the 1980s, they all had what we like to refer to as sort of a, a poverty mentality of feeling that in fact money was bad, money was evil, and you weren't doing your spiritual work if you had anything to do with money. What so were the three archety- were all struggling. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what were the three archetypal transactions that Steiner spoke about? With yeah, he, he speaks really about the, the archetype of giving. Mm-hmm. So he calls it the gift, mm-hmm. and then the loan, mm-hmm. and then the, the third one was the purchase. You could I see. Say the, the purchase, gift, and loan. And uh, each one of those has its own particular qualities and, and brings about a different kind of activity in individuals and in society. He, he's unique in that regard because uh, I'm not yet aware of any economics textbook. I keep asking economists uh, from time to time whether anybody has really incorporated the role of giving 
uh, in, into the economic system mm-hmm. uh, in their theories of, of economics. And I've yet to come across how, how, how important it is, and it really is a, a three-legged stool. I mean, we are most familiar with it here in the U.S. because of the prolific giving that occurs here in the United States. But, uh, but in many ways, without it, you could almost say that giving the, the, the return on the giving often doesn't show itself for another generation. I mean, I believe now, you know, in my late 40s, that, that the investment that was put into me with my education, with my upbringing, is, is, is starting to bear fruit. I would like to believe at least it's starting to bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And so RSF uh, Social Finance has chosen to work largely with loans, uh, in the midst, as you say, of a philanthropic and uh, indivi- community and community of individual givers who, who mostly deal with gifts. So what are the qualities that Steiner associated with the loan as opposed, and what are the qualities he associated with the gift? Yes. Well, with a the, with the, with the loan, basically what you're doing is you're, 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 you're taking a deep interest and what is happening, and, and the success of where the money is going, as far as a, as far as the loan is concerned, and it's it's done by, I would say, enlightened self-interest, because you're doing it because you want to make sure that also you're going to get it back. There's actually a, a a different kind of thinking that goes in, and those who have made loans privately or made loans to family or friends, and been disappointed because the loan has not come back, they will know what I'm talking about. That that often when it goes bad is when you realize, you know, what you did not do up front. Uh, we've had <clears throat> many situations where we've had to, where we've been asked to come in uh, after a loan has occurred by somebody else, or uh, let's say if it was a school or, or a clinic, and they made the loan directly, and then for some reason the, the organization felt that maybe if they were very, very quiet and didn't say anything, maybe the loan would, would never be called. And somehow, just not having things transparent and upfront can really can really cause damage to to relationships. So, RSF really tries to make that very very clean and and not be a block there between the originator of the loan, which are our individuals and organizations that have put money at RSF, but but to really be a facilitator to make sure that all the agreements are in place and upfront. So the and the way it's received is also very interesting because uh, we want to be sure that the borrower knows that it hasn't come from some anonymous institution, but it's really come from individuals and organizations that want them to be successful. And so those, you know, we we feel actually that community is enhanced, that uh, a community around an initiative, and in the case of uh, for-profit, it could even be a, a community of consumers. That actually, if people are more aware of how that organization is being financed and where that money is coming from, and also how they are they're um, making use of the services, whether it's by buying the product or by sending the child to the to the school, etc., by making use of that service, they're actually encouraging uh, that that economic flow, so the money can go back. It's, you could almost look at it as a as a horizontally laid lemniscate with money going out and then money coming back. So, uh, so a loan is really, really that that aspect of building a tight, more tight knit relationship. We love to 
smile that it starts on the end of the investor because the investor is very interested to lend, but only if it's going to be repaid. And we get that kind of grilling when, when people are about to put money with RSF, particularly if it's larger amounts. They want to be sure that we're safe, that we're sound, that we're, we act responsibly. And so they do all their due diligence, and that's very important. But we also try and encourage our, ourselves within our, our organization, but also within the borrowers, to really pay attention to the needs of the investor because it's only when you when you maybe um, have difficulty in repaying the loan, as a borrower may or may not have, that you suddenly realize, oh, my gosh, that investor, they were counting on that money. They were counting on it for something else. I mean, we have people who have put money with us that they're intending to use for their children's college education, et cetera. And it has to come back. It's not intended as a disguised gift. In fact, you have a system for self-directed IRAs, uh, individual right. retirement accounts, where people can put their IRAs with you. That's correct. Yes, yeah, it can happen for retirement. So if someone retires, they're also going to need an income stream. And yet these, these investments, as you say clearly on the website, uh, are not insured. Right. And more than that, the current interest rate is uh, 2.06%, um, yeah. which is not a high interest rate. That's uh, right. Uh, and I just want to come to this issue. Um, you and I have, have, have talked about this in the past, but I think you suggest that there may be a, a natural rate of return on investment that is below the uh, rates that the market uh, so avidly seeks. I wonder if yeah. you could talk about that question and idea of a natural rate of return on investment. Yeah, it's... Um if one if if we look at the how nature grows and how how a tree grows for example i think you know there are different kinds of trees there's the popular that pop, poplar that grows much faster than the oak tree for example but let's take the oak tree the oak tree that is more stable and solid and doesn't get blown over as easily as a poplar does um, it it really grows it grows exponentially, of course, every year, and you can see it in the rings of the tr- in the ring of the tree. But uh, we feel that there's something that is unhealthy in today's economic system. That it actually, if we are demanding a certain type of hyper growth or a certain type of um, interest rate, because when we demand a certain interest rate or a certain um, rate of return, we're actually putting a strain on the system and. Yes, RSF has had higher interest rates. When we started in 1984, uh, you know, that was a very high inflationary time, and I think it was Volcker, uh, the Fed, Fed chairman, was, was trying to tame inflation, so interest rates were up around 15 16%. And our rates were also similar uh, as far as that. We've, we've tried to stay uh, with, a, with a market rate, uh, and and yet commensurate with the with the duration of the money that's with us. So, for example, a two percent is not that bad for a, a three month uh, note, which is in effect what the, what it is that that RSF is is giving the investor. Is that an uh, annual rate or is that a, a quarterly rate? It's an annualized rate, right, that's but it's thought. but yeah. it's a, a quarterly is one is the note. So right, you, you basically. You can call it on a quarterly basis. Right, so, I get it. So in this environment, that isn't. But speaking so of we, this, we will adjust it down. One one thing interesting, Michael, here is that what what we tried to do right from the beginning was make the borrower and the investor know about the rate that each of them were paying, 
because RSF takes a, a fee for its work as well that's in the metal, and that makes it more expensive, of course, for the borrower. But they both value it because they know that it's coming from, they're able to get the loan all at once. They don't have to go out and scramble from individuals. Number two, the investor's happy because they know that we're going to be protecting it and looking after it. So one of the things that we did was build in a very interesting mechanism by which we will transfer our operating costs either more towards the borrower or more towards the investor, depending on where the interest rate environment is. So back in the in the early 80s, we basically had the majority of the cost being covered by our investors because interest rates were a lot higher. And then as interest rates have come down, we've equalized that. And right now, in effect, the borrowers are covering most of our operating costs. We're taking very little. In fact, we're actually taking a little bit of a loss at the moment on the investor side just to keep the interest rate around 2%. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting philosophy of really trying to make both sides of the equation because we've our, our system has tried to create a, a world in which, um, in effect, we have, and we can see it with the, with the world as it is today with the current economic crisis. And we basically today's transactions in the in the rest of the world are very abstract, meaning you don't really know where the money's coming from or where it's going. They're opaque so that you actually have um, can't, don't have visibility. Uh, and then you're also very anonymous. You have uh, real anonymity, which can be good. Some of our investors also want anonymity, but by and large, most of them really want a personal, feeling a personal connection. So we try and actually do the opposite. Instead of abstract, opaque, and anonymous, we really work more directly and transparently and personally. Now, of course, we have a long way to go to make it as as transparent, as direct, and as personal as we really would like. I'm talking with Mark Fencer, the founder and chair of the board of RSF Social Finance, and we'll be back in a moment with the second part of the conversation. Mark Fincer, uh, you are also uh, a board member of a uh, bank in the California Bay Area. I believe it's called the New Resource Bank. Do I have the name right? Yes, correct. Right. Tell us about how that bank came into being and why you're a director. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's something that we had been thinking about at RSF for many, many years. We actually commissioned a study back in the late 80s to see whether we should start a bank at RSF. And then we looked at it again in, in, the, in the 90s. And every sort of 10 years, we've looked at it. And each time, we felt we could actually fulfill most of our charitable mission and most of what we want to see happen with changing the attitudes and, and perceptions around money uh, through our current vehicle. And, and yet, uh, we were then approached back in, what was it, 2004 already, by Triodos Bank, which is a Rudolf Steiner-inspired bank in the Netherlands. They're a very successful bank. They've been uh, credited with lots and lots of innovation over in Europe. They have branches in Spain and Belgium and the U.K. and now in Germany. And, and uh, they approached us again. Uh, Peter Blom, I've known him for years. We've sort of grown up in this business together. And he, he said, Mark, why don't Triodos and RSF do a bank together in the U.S.? And just at that time, uh, Peter Liu, who's uh, the founder of New Resource Bank, was speaking with uh, Bob Epstein, a number of folks uh, prominent here in California and in the Bay Area, around the idea of starting an environmentally oriented green bank. And 
So Peter Blum uh, from Triodos Bank and I met Peter Liu, and we decided instead of starting our own, we would actually throw our hat in with New Resource Bank. And so Triodos is a significant investor in New Resource Bank. Um, RSF also then became a significant investor, and uh, then I joined the board, and I'm also very active on the credit committee of the, of the bank. And how is that bank doing in the current economic crisis? Well, it's going actually remarkably well. I mean, we we certainly um, would like to see you know the current economic crisis uh, disappear faster than I think it will. But uh, the bank is doing a current uh, capital raise. Uh, it did a raise when it started, and now it's doing a secondary offering, and that's going remarkably well. I feel that you couldn't have a better time in many ways for an environmentally oriented bank. Now, some of the loans that we've made to more real estate oriented projects are going slower and are not as uh, successful as we would like, but but by and large, um, the the growth of the bank has been uh, you know, very, very uh, significant, very surprising. We're ahead of any kind of business planning that we had in re- regards to attracting deposits. Uh, for me, it was kind of... Uh, interesting eye-opener because it took, as you mentioned, RSF's assets being around $120 million, and it took over 24 years to get it to that size. Well, um, New Resource Bank, within one year, I mean, well, I guess now it's about a year and a half, which is now about $150 million in deposits. So very quickly, people opened up uh, deposit accounts and um, are using it. It's a full commercial bank. One can open accounts online and the website of New Resource Bank, it's newresourcebank.com, is a is a great um, great website, and one can do online banking, et cetera. We have depositors from all over the world that uh, are excited about that there's another alternative. And, of course, there at New Resource Bank, it's FDIC insured and all the rest of it. But because it's a regulated institution, it has its certain restrictions and requirements. So I like the fact that there's a, a bank like New Resource Bank that is a great complement to some of the other nice banks in this space, like uh, Shore Bank Pacific up in the Northwest, and and uh, and then uh, the one that started in uh, Pennsylvania called New Century Bank, actually. So there are a few of those kinds of banks here um, in, this, in the U.S., but RSF is able to really um, work in some ways much more outside the box and really work more directly with building this relationship between the investor and the borrower, between the donor and the, and the recipient. So you really swim in a sea of, uh, of individuals and organizations who are dedicated to the conscious use of money uh, for both uh, social and environmental purposes. How would you describe the evolution of that community uh, over the years that you've been working on these issues. It seems to me there's been really extraordinary development of uh, social finance, socially responsible investment, uh, environmentally responsible investing, uh, just a a host of different uh, languages and silos. The New School had a conversation recently with Jed Emerson, uh, who developed the idea of blended value, which I'm yes. sure you're familiar with. Yes, I and, know Jeff uh, He's great. So uh, I just wondered, what is your perspective on the evolution of the whole field in which uh, RSF social finance is making uh, a significant uh, contribution? Yes, well, I, I believe it's connected to our human awakening, uh, that as human beings we're, 
waking up more and more to the consequences of our actions. And so as this evolution of consciousness occurs, we begin to realize that there's an effect that when we do something, when even very small, when we purchase something in a store, as I've told my children as, I, as they were growing up, you know, when we go to a store and they don't have what we want, um, let's either ask for it so the store gets the stimulus to know that this is what we want, or let's walk out and go somewhere else. Um, because if we buy something that we don't want, or that was not really what we intended, what we're actually doing is sending the wrong message to the whole economic system. Because as one pulls that item off the shelf, you're actually stimulating the whole of the economy to produce exactly that same thing. And it's a fascinating picture to almost imagine that as you're pulling something off the shelf, it's like the, the machinery gets started just to uh, produce it. Of course, it doesn't happen quite like that. But today, as production on demand, it's probably getting closer and closer to that. Certainly, Walmart has perfected that as far as their uh, their purchasing is concerned. But it's it's that kind of stimulation that we have to be very aware of what are we stimulating? What forces are we trying to stimulate in the world? And therefore, I believe, and that's why RSF has also gone more and more towards lending to for-profits, because somehow these, the for-profit in the commercial world has far greater impact uh, and is able to have far greater reach uh, to really change the consumer behavior, to work hand-in-hand with the consumer behavior, because in many cases it's consumer-driven. I don't even like the word consumer, but for want of a better word, that's what I'm using. Uh, but those who are those who are having a need uh, and needing to purchase something or needing a service, uh, to, to, for them to ask for it and to really not settle for less qualitatively and quantitatively. I think we need, of course, a lot less in our world than we think we need. But qualitatively, I think our, our standards are going up, and, and I think that whole evolution has brought about a change in awareness. I mean, back in the 80s, as you know, Michael Fullwell is... At that time, the only kind of socially responsible investment that you heard about was really around um, anti-apartheid in Africa and people divesting themselves of that. Of, of that. And, and we see the, the wonderful effect it had on, on helping to tr- change things over there. Uh, and I think that's happening in industry after industry. I mean, the, the challenge, of course, is that every time something new like this comes along and it becomes a little bit popular, there are opportunists that come in to the space and try and and uh, and really make a killing on it and you know a lot of them have and they have they've watered it down they've sometimes uh, diluted it so that you could you look at a portfolio today of most socially responsible screen funds and you just scratch your head and you say what in God's name are they are they thinking you know are, what's really socially responsible about these you know these funds and so, of course there's been know, a tremendous debate about uh about these socially responsible funds, and <laughs> Paul Hawkins notably did a a big critique of them. Uh, started his own fund uh, uh, on a very different basis. Uh, so there are many, many uh, different views of that. But but you're absolutely yeah. right. There is a tremendous amount of question about how effective many of these funds are. I think there's room for everybody. I think each. What I appreciated about Paul's uh, critique was that it woke people up to, you know, how do we go further? You know, that this is, we can't rest on our laurels. We always have to ask ourselves, what's the next level that we want to go in? And, 
And otherwise, there's a t- tendency to dumb it down to the lowest common denominator, and we need to constantly be raising it and asking ourselves these hard questions. So I appreciated that very much. Um, and I think people have really tried to address it and uh, in different ways. I think having banks like New Resource Bank uh, showing up on the scene, also smaller local community banks. We hear on, on numerous uh, initiatives that are springing up to try and really create also more localized way of having the, the money circulate within a, within a local community. Because in many ways, RSF financing has really been about community finance. We wouldn't make loans, not even to the schools that we first started lending to, unless we knew that there was a community of support that was standing behind it. We called it a spirit of determined cooperation. And out of that, we, we had confidence that we would get repaid and that the loan would be successful. You know, one of the things that really fascinates me in this field that I hear less conversation about is the nature of money itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are a number of people who have influenced my thinking on this. A wonderful book by Jacob Needleman on oh, money yeah. and the meaning of life. But particularly a book by Bernard Lytower. Is that how you pronounce his name? Or uh, I, I know it as Leotar. Leotar. Bernard Leotar. Okay. He was a founder of the Euro. And he wrote an extraordinary book that has just stayed with me called The Future of Money, Creating New Wealth, Work, and a Wiser World. And and in that, uh, he talks about a working definition of money as an agreement within a community to use something as a means of payment. And um, he also talks uh, at some length about how fundamentally mysterious money is and how few people think in depth about what money is. Um, and, and this comes to, to mind, of course, in the current global financial crisis, uh, where um, you know, the whole question of so-called fiat currencies, uh, like the US dollar or other nation-based currencies, uh, is up for grabs. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, the United States is essentially trying to print its way out of a, right. a credit crisis. Right. Uh, and uh, and and Leotar, say his name for me again. Leotar. Leotar. Leotar uh, uh, values two things. Uh, I'd like your comments on one. Uh, one is local currencies, currencies that are within communities, which uh, have existed for hundreds of years, I think, in Switzerland, but have been used uh, across the United States and in Europe and uh, in many communities. But the other, he proposes a global currency uh, essentially to replace the gold standard based on a basket of commodities so that they have a, a real base in uh, something substantive in the world that would anchor these fiat currencies so that you'd have the the local currencies coming up from the grassroots, and this global currency that he calls the Terra, based on real things, on oil, minerals, wheat, you know, other commodities. Uh, and he, he deeply believes that this would help move us away from a world that requires growth in order to survive. The fiat currencies are all based on loans. And so from the moment you handle a dollar, uh, uh, th- that dollar requires interest payments in order to exist in uh, circulation. So I just put that out to ask yeah. you, what are your views about the nature of money? What have you thought about it? And do we need fundamental 
reform of the global currency system as well as the global finance system. Yeah, I, I have, I've thought about it a lot, and I'm glad that you brought up Bernard's work because I really attribute um, a lot of the kind of thinking that's going on in the space of complementary and local currencies and, and new global currency to, to Bernard's work. He's um, quite a visionary and very grounded and practically oriented because, as you said, he was active in helping the, the euro get uh, get established. But to the to the to the your basic question, I think there his um, his thesis is correct, and in many ways RSF has tried to support some of that as well. Uh, we for years were hearing about certain efforts, even in the U.S., to create local currencies, and and Bernard was also looking for funding to try and take the Terra further. And I was very happy to be able to, through uh, a network of donors, uh, be able to encourage an, the establishment of a donor circle at RSF that actually is the only donor circle in the U.S. that is committed to supporting uh, efforts in complementary currencies. Because the way I'm looking at it is that we need to we need to have almost like a scaffolding. We need to have a couple of experiments going on to see, you know, as things deteriorate on the national and international scene, will we have alternatives? And um, Bernard's book, I mean, he's been working on another book called Of Human Wealth, and I have the transcript, but he's yet to come out with it. He's been promising it for years. keeps getting stalled. But the, the, the book Of Human Wealth really also goes back and researches throughout the ages, throughout civilization, that, in fact, major cultures really could not have emerged without the, a dual currency system, without the encouragement of local currencies, and without an, some kind of national, and in this case, of international currency. I think the Terra particularly, is, is his thesis there is that it also will address some of the, the real ups and downs. We would not have as, as high... Um, you know, a fluctuation between the, the peak growth period and the recessionary periods. And so he feels that for businesses, it would also be a very good currency, international businesses, to be able to trade in, in that kind of currency. That's right. And they wouldn't have to hedge their currency bets exactly. all the time, and which is a huge cost. Yeah. And but, for, local, for local communities, which RSF looks at really as a community is really where the true wealth is. That, you know, it's a phrase we've been using more and more these days, that true wealth is really exists when human beings come together for for a common good and, and really bring their their intention there. And that can happen. What's exciting about working on a complementary currency locally is that it actually, as you pointed out, Michael, it, it helps people to actually experience what money is because we tend not to think about it. It's, it's, we use it as a tool, and it is a, is a great tool. But if you begin to create your own currency, then you realize, oh, my goodness, here's an opportunity to to bring together unmet needs with unused resources. And uh, those unmet needs are tremendously bountiful in every community where people are uh, have have real needs, and they need to be addressed. Uh, and then they're... There are unused resources. There's money either not used. There's there's human capacity not being used. Uh, each each member in a community has something to offer, has something to give to the betterment of their of their community and their the larger society. And to us, that fits very much back to Rudolf Steiner's idea, where he called it associative economy and associative economics, where actually things are 
are completely turned upside down to where we currently look at it. He called the he said the economy is actually where brotherhood and sisterhood, where collaboration and cooperation occurs, where you're trying to meet human needs. It actually is not the place first and foremost for competition. Uh, that actually is more competition and excellence and the doggy dog environment that we know today in the business world. That actually belongs more in 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 education and the arts and where you really want to have have uh, people constantly striving for for uh, improvement of their mind of their of their environment if it's through the arts etc but really with with the brotherhood and sisterhood with really caring for your neighbor i mean that's a better way to put it with this associative economy that's really and that's what uh, a complementary currency really does it it lets you realize what are the resources the full resources uh, that are in our community. Edgar Kahn is another one. I don't know if you've read his book, No, more, Thro- no more Throwaway People. Uh-huh. Uh, Edgar Kahn is, is um, I believe he was very active in the um, Kennedy administration, and he's, he's an attorney and just a very, very fine human being uh, in what he's done in creating uh, time banks. They're literally uh, banks of uh, time where, where people can uh, volunteer their services and get credit and he's worked with juvenile courts, et cetera, to really monetize in a way uh, and help those young people find uh, meaningful work and, and value for, for uh, as they do their, um, do their community service, et cetera. So his, uh, I urge people to, to look up Edgar Kahn's work, uh, Time Dollars. But these little time banks uh, is one of the experiments that the Fund for Complementary Currencies, this the donor collaborative, is supporting. The time banks—they uh, are—they really created uh, almost like a bank in a box concept, where you can have six or twelve volunteers in a community come together and and put something like this together, you know, relatively easily. In the past, it used to have to be one person, and that person would get burnt out, and then it would stop. Where's Whereas the website broke... for this? <laughs> yeah. Where's they... the website for this, or is there not? Um, I think it's timebanks.org. Okay. I, I haven't looked right. at it for yeah. a while, but. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Bernard uh, writes, if your family lived in the 1930s in Western Europe, the U.S., Canada, or northern Mexico, uh, literally thousands of communities started their own currency systems. Your village or town probably used one. And he gives examples. There were rabbit tails used in Olney, Texas. It apparently had the beneficial side effect of reducing an excess of jackrabbits in the area, or seashells with the Harter Drug Company in Pismo Beach, California, and wooden discs uh, within God We Trust manufactured by the Cochrane Lumber Company as a medium of exchange in Petaluma. And in fact, in West Marin right now, uh, uh, there is an ongoing effort to try to create a local currency. So... As you say, these are happening all over. But I'm, I'm fascinated to hear that there may be a place where people can get a, a bank-in-a-box uh, system and, and, um, and uh, figure out how to do this with a small community of people. A broader website where a lot of this debate and a lot of uh, blog, we have a blog, uh, John Bloom at RSF has a blog on, on some of this, as well as we put uh, a lot of these articles around this whole theme on a website called reimaginemoney.org. Okay. And that's uh, it's associated with RSF, and uh, I think you can get through it through the RSF uh, link or just go directly to reimaginemoney.org. 
okay. and uh, Bernard's work, articles related to uh, Edgar Kahn's work. Uh, Resurgent Magazine did a whole issue, I believe, last year that um, RSF helped to edit uh, all around um, questions around money. Right. So, but it, you're right, Michael. Uh, this is a theme that people are not addressing. You know, they're often looking to what money does, but not what money is. Right. And I just found the website, reimaginemoney.org. It looks very, very productive. I'd like to go back. Um, there's so many directions we could take this conversation, but I'd, I'd like to go back to Rudolf Steiner's work. Um, uh, one of the fields, the way I came to know his work, is through our work at Commonweal with cancer and, and uh, going to some of the extraordinary uh, cancer hospitals in Europe and Switzerland uh, that uh, were inspired uh, by him. And I guess I want to ask you, um, this man's system is so deeply mysterious. Um, some of his ideas are accessible, but others are very, very far out for the, uh, the new reader. Uh, how how do you hold some of his ideas about the journey of the soul to different planets and all those kinds of things? How do you hold the very extraordinarily mysterious ideas that he holds about the nature of the universe? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think um, you know, he wanted um, every individual to basically go their own journey and to find their, their own path. And um, so, in many ways, I hold it by realizing that there there may or may not come a time where more and more human beings will have similar experiences as he had, and um, in particularly in his book, How to Know Higher Worlds, you know that's where he really gives some very fundamental basic exercises to help school the individual in their own sort of inner meditative life and being able to develop capacities by which they will be able to see uh, more than they can see today. So it's really uh, the way I'm always, uh, the way I've always read his work, and it really started with his work with Schroer and then with uh, Goethe, uh, that he felt that in many ways that, that we're not disciplined enough in our in our spiritual life, that we actually need to be far more disciplined in our meditative work and, you know, very much the way the Buddhist Buddhist practice is. You know, it's a very disciplined... In the case of Buddhist practice, as you know, Michael, the, it's been tested over thousands of years. And Steiner, I think, was attempting to create a practice that would encompass the opportunity for, for uh, let's say, a Buddhist approach or any, any other approach towards meditation, uh, but particularly for the Western mind. And so he was trying to, in effect, translate it in, in a way, and he used the term, as you well know, spiritual science. And in other books, he calls it initiation science. But he always put the word science there because he felt that modern science uh, was only half the story, that there needed to be another, part, another half. So as you almost feel in some of his books, some of his writings, he's battling against the scientific thinking of, the, of his day. You know, he's really challenged by it, and he's feeling that it's not giving the whole story. Whereas I, knowing you, Michael, and knowing how holistic you are and the incredible work that Commonweal has done over these years and continues to do and how it grows and evolves, and even this new school, how this new school is, is growing, 
that is a that's working out of a common sense of a oneness, which is not excluding. And I think the danger is what he felt the danger was that that science was excluding. Mm-hmm. And at least in his day, he felt, and I, we know that science has actually continued to evolve, and and physics and so on is beginning to discover certain things that they never used to talk about. So um, I, that's how I hold it. I hold it that we just don't know, mm-hmm. and therefore I would rather live in holding the unknowing than uh, saying that I only know what I can see. Yes, in... Uh it was a wonderful, there's several collections of Steiner, but one I like uh, was edited and introduced by our friend and colleague, Robert McDermott, yes. called The Essential Steiner. Yeah. And, um, and just looking at the, the headings of the different sections, he starts with knowledge, nature, and spirit, with Steiner's involvement with Goethe and the idea of freedom and the path of knowledge. And the path of knowledge seems to me a rather uh, unique contribution of Steiner's because, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steiner held that the the Western mind, because it had so developed the sort of logical and rational, could actually receive deep intuition through the mental sphere. Now, I may have that totally wrong, but am I headed in the right direction on, on that? Particular point. Yeah, yeah. He really, in many ways, it, it comes out in so many of his his works where he really he speaks about, and I think it's a lot was for for Middle Europe and also the West to really through the you call it the mental sphere. He called it very much through the thinking, through the schooling the thinking, of the thinking, right, right? And that actually our power of thought uh, can actually be schooled so profoundly that it is a doorway, a real doorway into the soul, a doorway into the spirit. And so, um, and yet interestingly enough, for each country he gave, I mean, one of his verses that he gave um, for the United States, he gave somebody who came back to the United States, from from over in Switzerland to the United States, and he gave, he said, this is a a verse for America, um, and it starts with, may our feeling penetrate. So he really goes to the feeling area for us here in the U.S. to be able to... Whereas I think for the German mind, he, he knew that they were just so fascinated with the, the role of their, their thought, thought life that I think he addressed a lot of that, exactly what you're saying, in trying to school it, and he felt that actually it would, it would open um, a certain new kind of discipline that would lead towards uh, an experience of, of the, the non-sensory world. In our last minutes together, Mark, uh, I'd like to um, ask you just from your experience, from your inner experience, uh, from your experience in the world, uh, where do you think we're headed in this <laughs> troubled time that we're in right now? What are, what are the challenges and what are your, what are your hopes for um, the best uh, and most fruitful directions for us to follow? Well, that's hard to say in just a few minutes. Um, but I, where I start with is what what you're doing, Michael, with uh, with Commonweal, because uh, what you're doing is really trying to bring people together in a community where they can come and find their own healing through companionship and through their own change of of relationship to their to their surrounding to themselves. And uh, in many ways, it takes crisis to do that, right? In the case of cancer, that's a form of a crisis. And I think our whole civilization is in that crisis. 
and as you know in your in your work there it's uh, it's always never sure you're never sure whether someone can step up and and move forward whether it's even in their destiny to to make the change and i'm not sure how we will proceed as a as a civilization i tend to be on the hopeful side i tend to feel that as things become more dire and more uh troubling and as we begin to uh to see more blatant um I would say more blatant manipulation. Uh, you know, I found myself with this in this la- in this current economic crisis, and with uh, the whole subprime mortgage uh, crisis, et cetera, starting to get really, really angry inside. And I've had to work on that personally because, you know, I know it's it's all part of the the current paradigm, but it's becoming more blatant. It's become for me, it's becoming more blatant, and that gives me hope because I would I would hope that. As we all begin to see it more, then we'll make the changes that need to happen. In the case of what you try and encourage a commonweal, hopefully it'll be the individual changes. In the case of our civilization, in the case of our, our culture, hopefully it will be towards finding deeper meaning and recognizing uh, that our planet is suffering and that we really need to make the changes that are necessary. We need to tread much lighter on this planet. We need to be far more aware of the environmental cost, the environmental health of the planet, not just us personally, but of the planet. And uh, through working with money differently, I believe it is one tool to really bring about change and to really, as my friend Judy Wicks likes to refer to it, to really ask, what is a living return? What kind of living return do we want to get from our resources, from our financial resources? And I think that, to me, is a very, very important thing. And so, you know, last word here would be to say that I'm I'm hopeful, but I feel we're we're all going to have to pull together if we're going to um, if we're going to turn the corner and and find the solutions that are needed. Mark Fencer, founder and chair of the board of RSF Social Finance, and a real visionary in reimagining money. Um, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation with the New School. Thank you for the invitation, Michael. Very much appreciated. It's been just great. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.